0: Well, so if you see me leaving, 8.05 on the plane. So that should be... Good afternoon.
1: No. Welcome back to the third and last session on the progressive tradition. This one is the progressive legacy. Uh, and uh, since people have places to go, at the end of, this, uh, at the, end of the session, we're going to uh, start to, uh, promptly and try to keep to schedule. My name is James McPherson. I'm the moderator of this session. I grew up in Minnesota and went to college there, and the principal professor of American history at my college was a student of John B. Hicks, who wrote uh, one of the famous books in American history, The Populist Revolt, Uh, a wonderful book, which uh, was one of the first real books in American history that I read, naturally. Uh, And Hicks argued that populism grew out of the Midwest, especially the states of Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Minnesota, and so on, and that it put in train the reform movements that culminated in progressivism and in the New Deal. Uh, I grew up in a town uh, that was the hometown of John A. Johnson, who was the reform progressive governor of Minnesota in the same years that Theodore Roosevelt was president. And his statue stood on the courthouse lawn uh, where I saw it almost every day. And, of course, the state next to us was Wisconsin, the home of Robert La Follette, the patron saint at the state level of, of progressivism. Uh, Chicago uh, produced Jane Addams, or Illinois did, uh, the city of Toledo had a reform mayor who called himself Golden Rule Jones. So as a consequence, I uh, went through college thinking that progressivism came out of the Midwest, that it was a product of the Midwest. Uh, then I went to graduate school in Baltimore, where I studied with Professor C. Van Woodward, the preeminent Southern historian, whose book, The Origins of the New South, is still one of the best books, I think, in American history, certainly in Southern history. Uh, And he argued that there was a significant uh, progressive movement overlooked by historians in the South. And even those southern governors and other leaders, senators, whom we think of as uh, racist demagogues, like Tom Watson, James Vardaman, Ben Tillman, were in fact genuine progressives who initiated child labor legislation, who attacked big corporations, uh, and put through reform movements. Woodward, though, had a significant uh, chapter in his book called uh, Progressivism for Whites Only. And it turns out that progressivism was for whites only not only in the South, but on a national level. And so the next thing I learned about progressivism was that not only did it come out of the South as well as the Midwest, but that it did not include racial reforms. It did not really include blacks uh, in, in its mainstream progressive coalition. Then I came here to teach at Princeton, uh, and one of the first undergraduate lecture courses or the first undergraduate lecture course I taught here was uh, the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. Uh, here, the state of Woodrow Wilson, and indeed uh, of his predecessor as governor of New Jersey, Franklin Murphy, a Republican progressive, good friend of Theodore Roosevelt. Um, I, uh, then, of course, New York State produced Theodore Roosevelt, whom we've heard a great deal about today, and another progressive governor named Charles Evans Hughes. Uh, the state of Massachusetts had a, progressive, had a progressive reform even before there was a progressive movement. And then, of course, at Columbia University, Richard Hofstadter uh, taught, and he argued that progressivism came out of the mugwumps, who were, of course, a Northeastern elite. So I had to add the Northeast to the Midwest Uh, and the South as the source of progressivism. Uh, Then in the early 80s, uh, Dan Rogers, whom you've heard from today, joined the Princeton faculty and in 1983 came out with an article that said there was no such thing as a progressive movement. And uh, by this time, I was no longer teaching the Gilded Age Progressive Period. I had moved back and was teaching the Civil War. Uh, a subject that I was now finding more comfortable because nobody had yet written an article saying there had been no civil war. (laughs) In that book, Dan argued that there was no single progressive movement uh, and there was no single phenomenon known as progressivism, uh, that it was a plural phenomenon. There were many... Progressives and many progressive reforms, some of them at cross purposes with each other, and you heard him talk about that a little bit this morning. Well, that raises the whole question about whether, as this title, as the conference title has it, uh, there is a progressive tradition in American politics and culture and society, and indeed to bring it down to the uh, subject of this final session, whether there is a progressive legacy or whether we should be talking about many different legacies. So I urge you to keep that in mind as you listen to the two papers now, two shorter papers, uh, as well as the four commentaries. Uh, I will introduce each speaker individually rather than try to introduce them all collectively, Uh, but I urge you to um, read more about them in your program uh, because I don't want to take a lot of time reciting all of their many achievements. Uh, But the first formal presentation will be offered by Richard Epstein, who uh, teaches at the University of Chicago Law School and has written several books and many articles, uh, many of them focusing around the theme of the relationship between government power and individual liberties, between the police power of the state uh, and the rights uh, of of, of people. Uh, And that will be at least one of the themes in his presentation.
0: Thank you. Well, I mean, coming to a gathering of historians, a little bit of culture shock with somebody who's a lawyer and way in which you can sort of understand that it's a little bit like Rashomon, in which everybody seems to perceive the same events on different scales and in different ways. As a lawyer, I tend to use the microscope, and most historians tend to use, shall we say, a wide-range scheme. And so what I'm going to try to do is to relate the very broad themes that are associated with the progressive movements in the historical tradition with the rather narrow kinds of questions that are associated um, with some of the legal developments and the judicial innovations that took place in this particular time. And in order to do so, in effect, I'm going to come here also as the outsider in another sense. I regard myself as a somewhat unreconstructed defender of laissez-faire in a household which seems to be filled with people who see at least some charms to at least some portions of the progressive movement. And in order to explain why it is, what I'm going to do is to start with a quote by somebody who has impeccable credentials on the question of what it is that we mean when we start to speak of laissez-faire, so that I can make it clear to you that I'm defending a conception as I understand. understand it, rather than the conceptions that may have been understood by some of its critics. And there are powerful differences. So there's a man named Jacob Feiner, who for many years was a professor of economics at the University of Chicago. And in his early retirement, he came to Princeton University. So we've got the best of both worlds right here. And he wrote in the Journal of Law and Economics in 1960 an essay called The Intellectual History of Laissez-faire, which was meant to be a critical account of laissez-faire by somebody who had some doubts about its intellectual coherence and integrity. And in doing this, his definition, however, is I think very instructive because what he tries to do is to set up the strongest account of what the principle means rather than the weakest. And he says, I will carefully avoid using the term laissez-faire to mean what only unscrupulous or ignorant opponents of it, he never names them, and never its exponents make it to mean, namely philosophical anarchism or opposition to any governmental power or activity whatsoever. I will in general use the term to mean what the pioneer systematic exponents of it, the physiocrats and Adam Smith argued for, namely the limitation of government activity to the enforcement of peace and of justice in the restrictive sense of commutative justice, by which he means justice in exchange, to defense against foreign enemies and to public works regarded as essential and impossible or highly improbable of establishment by private enterprise or for special reasons unsuitable to be left to private operation. So in effect what happens, this is not a definition which says in effect that we believe that nothing can be done by way of government to alter the powerful forces that take place inside an economy or inside politics. And in particular, it's quite clear that it starts to talk about a number of heads of jurisdiction in which it is appropriate to think about state action. And let me just mention some of them to you so that you can understand what the architecture is like. Well, the first and the most obvious of these is obviously you can have state enforcement of contracts in order to allow for voluntary exchange to take place. The second thing, of course, is that you do not allow what lawyers and economists have come to call externalities, a situation where one person imposes cost upon the other by the use of force of various other kinds of devices, and so they develop within the laissez-faire tradition a strong tradition of tort law, which particular, would allow for the injunction and prevention of nuisances, pollution, and various kinds of activities. And third, it seemed very clear that all the defenders of laissez-faire believed that there was a government place for the creation and the foundation of infrastructure, and that would include public roads and highways and railroads of one sort or another, essentially the argument being that communication networks are very difficult to assemble by purely voluntary means, that they often have monopoly characteristics in their operation, that they are, therefore, to use the classic phrase, affected with the public interest, and perhaps some form of rate regulation associated with their use would be permissible. So long, and here is the caveat, that it does not result in the confiscation of the investment that people make to establish this thing in the first place. And last, I think for these purposes, laissez-faire finds it quite congenial to say that an antitrust law directed against various kinds of cartel and monopoly sorts of price-fixing arrangements would also be regarded as appropriate. And so what happens is you've got four or five fairly substantial heads of jurisdiction, and as Stephen Holmes, who's not here today, reminded me last night, he said, if you think it's easy to maintain a minimal state, think again. It is a monumental task which requires fairly extensive government action in order to keep the minimum state in order. Laissez-faire should not be understood as an argument in favor of weak government it should be argued, understood as an argument in favor of relatively strong government, but its activities being confined to certain kinds of areas. What, then, you ask, would be excluded from laissez-faire under this characterization? And the answer is basically to the extent that there are voluntary markets that can exist in competitive form for the exchange of goods and services. Under those circumstances, one does not try to regulate the price of the goods that are sold or the wages that are done, one. And two, one does not try to take by government intervention a market which looks to be competitive in its operation and convert it into something which has monopoly characteristics because one has to remember and hear the public choice or what can go wrong with government story is very apparent, very important, is the government which is strong enough to break up a monopoly, is strong enough to create a monopoly on its own part, and that when one starts to talk about government power, one has to think of it as a two-edged sword which can be turned to good purposes in public interest or can be perverted to private interest if not superintended. Now that's the political economy of laissez-faire. But lawyers, in effect, can never think of anything quite that grand for too long without trying to figure out how they could relate it to some kind of a particular text. And here the text we're talking about is the Constitution. And our Constitution is essentially a limited government doctrine which has very strong libertarian overtones in terms of its protections. It has a clause which says that no state shall impair pass laws impairing the obligation of contract. It says that no person shall be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. It says nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. It says that you shall pass no law restricting or abridging the freedom of speech, and so on. If one were to simply look at this, you would say on the strength of the text, the Constitution is a glorification of individual liberties, which in many ways makes no allowances for the kinds of regulation that government is supposed to be able to do under the classical theory of laissez-faire. And it turns out that this is correct if you're a narrow and rigid textualist, but from the very beginnings of our republic, and certainly from the end of the Civil War, at the same time that you had all sorts of private businesses claiming that the various protections of individual rights insulated them from government affairs, there was a contrary movement whose basic contours were accepted by all conservative and liberal judges going into the essential period of the progressive era. And that's this sort of brooding omnipresence known as the police power, which is referred to by Dirk Hartog earlier and several other speakers. And to the technical lawyer, what the police power referred to was the ability of the government to regulate private property and to restrict private liberties, including that of contract and speech, to the extent that such was necessary to protect the safety, health, morals, and general welfare of the public at large. Now, when you start to look at this, again, there's a certain kind of genuine ambiguity that immediately strikes to the mind. To the person who's not schooled in the tradition of lawyers, you can say the kinds of headings that we've talked about there are so broad that in effect the Lord giveth in the explicit text and taketh away from individuals everything that was given by a definition of the police power which was completely capacious. But it turns out that in the hands of the classical lawyers, the great problem that they had to face, and this was the battle that took place in the progressive era, was what was the scope and the definition of the particular police power, where everybody conceded that it existed on the one hand, and everybody on the other side conceded that it could not be pushed so far so that rights of liberty, speech, contract, and so forth could be completely extinguished on a whim by government. And one of the ways in which some of the classic lawyers started to deal with this particular question was to ask themselves the thing in the converse. What kinds of government regulation fell outside the scope of the police power by showing, in effect, that it fell within some other category of regulation that was barred to the state? And the same system of sort of judicial casuistry, which invented the police power in the first place, invented its most famous exception. And that was the exception for so-called labor legislation, which was involved in a number of key cases. To a classic 19th century lawyer who was moderately steeped in limited government and in laissez-faire, labor regulations essentially involved those situations in which the government sought to put its hand on the till in a way in which would interfere with the balance of market forces in contracts that had to do with the provision of labor in the marketplace. To a member of the progressive era, this was an anathema because they were quite convinced, in effect, that all marketplaces were defected by virtue of the disparity. In size that existed between the giant trusts and corporations that had formed and the relatively small position of the laboring worker. And in order to counter that, they decided to put things forward on virtually all of the fronts that I talked about. They were champions of safety regulation with respect to the railroads, all of which was upheld without a murmur by the Supreme Court in the period between 1895 and about 1920. They were very concerned with issues of health, and that led, in effect, to a discussion of whether or not the workmen's compensation statutes would be regarded as constitutional. And when that issue came to the Supreme Court in 1916, again, it was upheld strongly by a unanimous court on the grounds that this was indeed a proper issue within the scope of the police power. When it came to the question of government, of the regulation of antitrust monopolies, it's generally somewhat misunderstood, but the bottom line is by 1905, the ability of the national government to regulate through the antitrust laws nationwide cartels was also accepted. The big difference between the progressives and the laissez-faire types on this issue, however, is worth noting. To somebody who is in the laissez-faire tradition, the size of somebody on the opposite side of a bargain is utterly irrelevant to the question of the distribution of bargaining power. What matters in classic economic terms is the number of alternatives that are available to people who have to deal with this fellow. So, in fact, if a tiny company can sell a software program for less than Microsoft, and it will deliver you a better product. The fact that Microsoft Microsoft has $100 billion in the bank and lots of legal bills is utterly immaterial to your market decision. You will go to the smaller fellow. And on the other hand, the progressives think that size determined market power, and therein lay the battle. So that when one started to look at the cases that took place around 1905 through 1920, it was these two different conceptions of labor regulation that dominated the whole discussion. And I, in line with, I think, most classical economists, think that the laissez-faire people had it right and guys like Brandeis and so forth had it wrong. And let me just mention here a couple of cases or illustrations to you of the particular point so as to set the stage for the general discussion. First of the cases I want to talk about a bit is one that has already been talked about earlier, but I want to embellish it a little bit. This is a case called Lochner against New York, which in many people's minds defines an era as opposed to being a single 5-4 decision of the United States Supreme Court. At issue in that particular case was a statute which regulated the maximum hour of bakers equal to 10 hours per day. But in fact, that's only part of the statute. The rest of the statute had some very interesting features that I'm going to mention for a moment. One is that not all bakers were regulated, only certain kinds of bakers were regulated. And second, the statute itself did not only control maximum hours, but had all sorts of other regulations on the way in which baking conduct could be undertaken, all of which were sustained without objection by the Supreme Court and the lower courts that looked at it, including one which dealt with the question about ventilation of sleeping quarters that were required for bakers on the job. And the progressive critique of this particular case was that it was an outlandish invasion of the state legislative power to protect the health of workers by limiting hours to a rational amount. In fact, I think once one looks more closely at the statute, I think it is more accurately characterized, as the majority of the Supreme Court characterized it, as a labor statute, which in effect was designed to prohibit certain kinds of prohibitions against competitive forms of organization that were at war with those adopted by the dominant union structure. And here, just by way of a historical note, I refer you to an article written in The Nation, not exactly your reactionary publication, in 1905 in November, in which it defended the decision in the the Lochner decision, and the title of the article was called A Check on Union Tyranny. And the question is, why would they choose this particular title? And I think the explanation has to go with the kinds of production that existed in New York State at the time. There were union bakers, in effect, who worked two shifts, one in the evening and another one that came in the morning, the first to bake and the second to collect the bread after it had risen. But the non-union bakers, all of German immigrant extraction, and we've already heard about the anti-immigrant strain associated with the progressive movements, worked the single shift and they slept on the job. In effect, what happened is that a regulation that was neutral on its face was vastly disparate in its impact, to the point that union bakers were not troubled by this at all, and indeed within a couple of years after Lawton negotiated a nine-hour contract under collective bargaining arrangements, so they weren't doing it for their benefit. Rather, what happens is they were doing this to wipe out the rivals. And this is one of the great themes of American constitutional law, When does something that looks to be a health regulation on its face simply operate as a pretext with respect to labor competition? The case, therefore, really stands for the question, when you have regulation which has mixed motives and so forth, how do you classify it, given that health regulation is under the police power and labor regulation is not? One sign that this is the way, in fact, the judges thought about the issue comes from not the opinion of Justice Holm, which was relatively mindless in its examination, although it's very famous for its rhetoric, but rather that of Justice Holland. He dissented in the Lochner case thinking it a health regulation and making a rather weak case for that. But when it came to the question of straight labor regulations in which there was no health issues, he flipped side and in effect voted with the reactionaries, as they are sometimes called. So that three years later in a case called the Dare against the United States, the question was whether or not a yellow dog contract, that is a contract by an employer which says that if you wish to work with me on the rails, you have to forsake union membership so long as you're in my employ. Whether or not the state could ban that kind of contract and impose upon the railroad industry a system of mandatory union collective bargaining. And Justice Harlan upheld that particular Held the constitutional challenge to that statute, saying, in effect, that it effectively interfered with freedom of contract, that it was a labor statute, it was not a health statute. And here I think this actually raises a very profound point, which is that if you're thinking about what went on by the statute, It was, in classical laissez-faire terms, an effort to convert what was in fact a relatively competitive labor market into a monopolistic market where the monopoly in question was not only created by voluntary organization but would be propped up by a statute which required individual management firms to negotiate with workers at that particular point in time. This was an incredible flashpoint, but again, from the point of view of laissez-faire, whatever you think about the workmen's compensation statutes and the requirement of various safety devices on train, the decision itself was clearly correct, as was another decision which again brought down the immense wrath from the, from the progressives several years later in a case called Hitchman-Cold, where Justice Pitney, who was a genuine master of equity jurisprudence, said in effect that you could obtain as a firm an injunction against Against the union that had secretly organized workers, but had yet to call them off from the job, and the point, in effect, again was to see in the use of this action an ability to break up what would otherwise be labor monopolies. This, in fact, now leads us, I think, to another point, which is at the nub of the dispute that takes place between the progressives of this material and the laissez-faire activists on the other side. To somebody who was a progressive, the imbalance of market power which is defined by wealth, not by alternatives, is in effect something which is appropriate for redress by the intervention of government power in the form of a collective bargaining arrangement. (laughs) To somebody who, in effect, is in the laissez-faire tradition, this is wholly inappropriate and that to the extent that you have competitive labor markets, you should apply the antitrust law to labor just the way in which you would apply it to management. So that the Clayton Act, which said that labor is not an article of promise, of commerce, passed in the first two years of the Wilson administration, is in effect something which is at violent distension with the way in which these things are understood. Now thinking about this generally. This scope of the police power has very powerful implications by way of the legacy for government generally when we're trying to figure out what happened subsequent to it. By the end of the progressive era, it was quite clear that the defenders of laissez-faire were beating a wholesale retreat in the courts on the one hand and in the pages of the New Republic and in Congress on the other. It was not FDR that sounded the first round of defeat for the traditional view on this subject. Rather, it turned out that it happened beforehand. It happened with the passage of the Railway Labor Act in 1926, which did sustain collective bargaining rights under the old court. It happened in 1932 when Hoover was president, when the Norris-LaGuardia Act was passed, in ways that prohibited federal courts from issuing injunctions in labor disputes. And it was certainly carried out through the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act of 1935, which instituted collective bargaining not only with respect to transportation, but with respect to manufacturing. Is this a legacy that we ought to be proud of, or is it one that we ought to be suspicious of? Well, let me just ask you one simple question. There have been a series of slowdowns that have taken place, for example, on United Airlines this year and on American Airlines several years before. There was the major train strike which took place in New York City in 1965 and so forth. To myself, anybody who's prepared to disrupt the provision of an essential public service is, in fact, somebody who ought to be greeted as a genuine peril to the security of the realm. I would never understand a rule which would allow, for example, a firm to decide to withhold services from its customer base because it wanted to win in a labor strike against its union. And the 19th century cases made it very clear that if you were a common carrier, a strike would not excuse you from the non-performance of your duties. What happens now is we have simply flipped the thing over. A couple of thousand pilots can shut down an entire airline. They can take millions of dollars out of the hands of shareholders, many of whom are pension funds. They can disrupt thousands upon thousands of travelers every day. And why is it? Because we have failed to understand in our labor policy that a labor monopoly is no better than a product monopoly and may in fact be worse to the extent that it introduces interruptions in services that no product monopolist would otherwise want to have. So that when you think about this particular movement, and I will close on this note, remember that in each and every case in which you see an expansion of the police power, ask yourself whether you're using it to create or to combat a monopoly. I've talked about the issue in labor. Dirk Hartog earlier made an allusion to what happened in the law of zoning, and it's exactly the same story. A progressive reform that was designed to open up communities was seized by local interests and power and found as a means to close them down again. If you really believe in the anti-monopoly tradition, You cannot believe fully in the progressive tradition, and, in fact, you will get a more consistent and more satisfying response to going back to a constitutional jurisprudence that has been so widely discredited that I sometimes wonder why I am so foolhardy to defend it on alien territory. Thank you.
1: The presenter of the second paper is Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., uh, an historian who literally needs no introduction uh, let me say only that um, not long after I was assigned to read John D. Hicks' The Populist Revolt I was assigned to read The Age of Jackson by Arthur Schlesinger and I think it was the combination of these two books uh, both of which are really exciting uh, to read, challenging uh, full of, of, of argument, full of sound and fury signifying a lot um, that uh, that made me decide that I wanted to become a professional historian. So I'm glad to um, to have the opportunity to uh, to tell Arthur that uh, one of the reasons I'm here at this table is because I read that book 40 some years ago. Arthur Schlesinger.
2: This uh, session, I take it, is to consider the contemporary relevance of the progressive tradition, whether as we confront the urgencies of the 21st century, the progressive tradition is still a live option, or whether it is now a historical curiosity of interest primarily to antiquarians. How to define the progressive tradition? Let me cite some texts. Progressivism sprang from the cities, while populism was a rural affair, but the populists prepared the way for the progressives by breaking with the basic Jeffersonian dogma that that government is best which governs least. Fearful of the rising power of the large corporations, the populists declared in their 1892 platform, we believe that the powers of government— in other words, of the people, should be expanded to the end that oppression, injustice, and poverty shall eventually cease in the land. This was not a totally new thought. Sixty years before, resort to government as a check on the overweening power of business had been a Jacksonian insight. The Bank of the United States, old Hickory told his cabinet, the Bank of the United States is in itself a government which has gradually increased its strength from the day of its establishment. The question between itself and the people, Jackson said, has become one of power. I believe that this was the underlying concern, the fundamental theme, the element, purpose of progressivism. Jackson's presidency vindicated the national government against two foes, Nicholas Spittles Bank and the state of South Carolina. But public authority was invoked in those days ad hoc. Public authority against private power was invoked ad hoc and did not modify hallowed Jeffersonian doctrine. Progressives, however, took Jefferson head on. Herbert Crowley wrote the promise of American life in order, as he said, to emancipate American democracy from its Jeffersonian bondage. President Theodore Roosevelt, regarding unaccountable corporate power as a threat to democracy itself, argued that only the national government, TR said, could exercise the needed control over the economy. This does not represent centralization, TR continued. It represents merely the acknowledgement of the patent fact that centralization has already come in business. If this irresponsible outside power, TR said, is to be controlled in the interest of the general public, it can be controlled in only one way, by giving adequate power of control to the one sovereignty capable of exercising such power, the national government. Woodrow Wilson, too, representing the party of Jefferson, nevertheless abandoned Jeffersonian dogma I feel confident, Wilson declared in 1912, that if Jefferson were living in our day, he would see what we see without the watchful interference, the resolute interference of the government. There can be no fair play between individuals and such powerful institutions as trusts. Though Wilson's new freedom attacked Theodore Roosevelt's new nationalism in in 1912, In practice, the new freedom adopted much of the new nationalism's program. As FDR, whose new deal drew on both TR's new nationalism and Wilson's new freedom, as FDR put it in November 1933 to Wilson's homme de confiance, Colonel House, the real truth of the matter, Roosevelt wrote House, is that the real truth of the matter is, as you and I know, that the financial element in the larger centers has owned the government ever since the days of Andrew Jackson, and I am not wholly accepting the administration of Woodrow Wilson. The country, Roosevelt said, is going through a repetition of Jackson's fight with the Bank of the United States, only on a far bigger and broader basis. The national government, the progressive felt, was the key to the preservation of democracy. It was in particular the the protector of the powerless. The Jeffersonian illusion was to say that because local government was closer to the people, it was therefore more responsive to the people. But local government has mostly been, through American history, responsive, has mostly been the government of the locally powerful. The way the locally powerless found to assert their human and constitutional rights was through appeal to the national authority as Madison had predicted to George Washington long ago in proposing a congressional veto on state legislation. National authority, Madison said, was essential to to check the aggressions of local majorities on the rights of minorities and individuals. History has justified Madison. The national government has affirmed the Bill of Rights against local vigilantism. It has preserved the public forests, lands, and public lands and the natural environment against local greed and spoliation. The national government has civilized industry, secured the rights of labor organization, improved life on the countryside, and provided a decent living for the old. Above all, the national government has pressed for racial justice against local bigotry. Had the state rights creed prevailed, we would still have slavery in the United States. Yet in recent years, there has been a backlash against the national government. Government is not the solution to our problems, Ronald Reagan said in his first inaugural address. Government is the problem. Democratic presidents proclaim that the era of big government is over. A Supreme Court majority seems eager to shrink the Commerce Clause and move the Constitution back toward the Articles of Confederation. The attack on affirmative government has long been on the way. The slogan of a welfare state, said Herbert Hoover, has emerged as a disguise for the totalitarian state by the route of spending. Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, 1944, endorsed the thesis that countries go totalitarian when governments acquire excessive power under the pretext of doing good for their citizens. The Hoover-Hayek thesis was and is historical nonsense. It has been impotent democratic government and not unduly potent democratic government that has laid the foundation for totalitarianism. Fascist and communist regimes arose not because democratic government was too powerful, but because it was too weak. Sixty years ago, Thurman Arnold scoffed at what he called the absurd idea that dictatorships are the result of a long series of small seizures of power on the part of the central government. The exact opposite, Arnold Thurman Arnold pointed out, was the case. Every dictatorship which we now know, he wrote, flowed into power like air into a vacuum because the central government, in the face of a real difficulty, declined to exercise authority. Or as FDR said, history proves that dictatorships do not grow out of strong and successful governments, but out of weak and helpless ones. New Deal did not put the republic on the road to serfdom. It liberated the serfs to become producers and consumers, and as they prospered, to start voting republicans. One wonders why Hoover and other enemies of the welfare state believed the government aid to business was wise and virtuous, while government aid to farmers or workers or the unemployed or the elderly was vicious and led to collectivism. Hoover himself signed the Smoot-Hawley Tariff, the highest in American history in deliberate welfare policy on behalf of business. It seems equally odd that so many of those who denounce statism when it means social protection of the poor, and defenseless or prohibition of anti-social business practices are at the same time the most zealous advocates of statism uh, in the sinister sense of using the government to crack down on citizens thinking unpopular thoughts. Those who most loud, loudly condemn statism on the economic front are very often the ones who advocated most vociferously on the intellectual front who demand censorship, book banning, oaths, witch hunts, expulsion of liberal professors, and so on. Enemies of affirmative government used to worship the government agency that contains the greatest potential for totalitarianism, J. Edgar Hoover's Federal Bureau of Investigation. The affluent also argue that affirmative government has malign moral consequences. Public solicitude, it is is said, corrupts the poor, depriving them of the economic insecurity the well-off hold to be the essential stimulus to achievement. Economic security for the poor is considered to sap initiative and self-reliance and to promote dependency. In order to succeed, George Gilder, the right-wing publicist, writes, in order to succeed, the poor need most of all the spur of their poverty. This argument that economic security saps initiative is one the affluent apply rather more to the poor than to themselves. If the rich really believed in the salubrious effects of economic insecurity, they would favor a hundred percent inheritance tax so that their children would not be deprived of this great moral benefit. Instead, well you know, you all know how the rich feel about the estate tax. When the rich do not oppose affirmative government as a threat to the morals of the poor, then they oppose it as a menace to the liberties of the people. But the record surely shows that the intervention of national authority, far from rushing the republic down the road to serfdom, has given a majority of Americans more personal dig- dignity and liberty than they ever had before. The individual <coughs> freedoms destroyed have been, in the main, the freedom to deny black Americans their elementary rights as American citizens, the freedom to work little children in mills and immigrants in sweatshops, the freedom to pay starvation wages and enforce dawn-to-dusk working hours and to permit squalid working conditions, the freedom to deceive in the sale of goods and of securities and of drugs, the freedom to loot national resources and to pollute the environment, and so on. These are all freedoms, one supposes, that a civilized country can do without. National problems cannot always be confided to state and local government. Even with recent improvements in state administrative skills, it is far from clear that state and local governments are more competent, more expert, and more incorruptible than the national government. It remains as true today as it was when Tocqueville visited America, America in 1832, that, as he wrote then, the business of the union is incomparably better conducted than that of any individual state. The researches of that wonderful watchdog agency, the Center for Public Integrity, its researches into the financial disclosure reports required in 47 of our states, show that far too often legislators and state legislatures have significant monetary interests in the laws they impose on their constituents. And state and local lawmakers are subject to much less journalistic and other scrutiny than members of Congress. Because state legislatures are so much more venerable to business lobbies and business pressures, Theodore Roosevelt concluded, as he put it, the effective fight against adequate government control and supervision of corporate wealth engaged in inter- interstate business is chiefly done under cover and especially under the cover of an appeal to states' rights. The paradox is that laissez-faire zealots and market fundamentalists don't get it. They still don't understand that it is the intervention of government that has rescued capitalism from the dread Marxist fate. Market fundamentalism, that is the doctrine that the unbridled marketplace contains the remedies for all our troubles, market fundamentalism would have would have, as Marx predicted, made the rich richer and the poor poorer, and thereby intensified class conflict. What saved capitalism from being destroyed by its own contradictions was something Marx had not foreseen, that is, the interventionist state. Marx had dismissed the state under capitalism as, in his words, a committee for managing the common affairs of the bourgeoisie. But p- p- Political democracy put Even the capitalist state up for grabs, and in America, non-business types, farmers, workers, intellectuals, minorities, have succeeded from time to time in grabbing the state in order to humanize the marketplace and infuse the system with a modicum of social responsibility. The more we condemn unadulterated Marxian socialism, says Theodore Roosevelt, the stouter should be our insistence on thoroughgoing social reforms. With interventionist government, the savior of capitalism, why then this rejection of of affirmative government, rejection of the progressive tradition? Well, the national government, like all tools, is liable to misuse and to abuse. Sometimes the government intervenes too much. Its regulations become pointlessly intrusive. Its programs falter and fail. After a time, exasperations accumulate and produce indictments. The fewer responsibilities loaded on the national authority, the better it will be able to discharge those it cannot escape. The more responsibilities that can be discharged by the market or by local or voluntary initiative, the better. The national government should intervene only when local and private efforts manifestly fail to promote the general welfare. The neoliberal critique of affirmative government made some interesting points where Traditional liberals, traditional progressives see government as an instrument of the general welfare. Neoliberals see government as dominated by organized interest groups, defining the general welfare as a total of organized claims and creating an economy weighed down by group entitlements. For its part, the progressive tradition, in its best moments, viewed, views the public interest as something greater than the aggregation of single interest claims. But the scramble of politics often tends to favor the best organized. There is also the vulnerability of public agencies to business takeovers. As Henry Adams, the most brilliant of American historians, noted when large corporations first began to afflict our democracy, the Erie Railroad, Henry Adams wrote, has proved itself able to override and trample on law, custom, decency, and every restraint known to society without scruple and as yet without check. The belief is common in America that the day is at hand when corporation is far greater than Erie, Henry Adams said, will ultimately succeed in directing government itself. Adams continued gloomily Under the American form of society, no authority exists capable of effective resistance. The national government, in order to deal with the corporation, must assume powers refused to it by its fundamental law. He is writing before the Supreme Court reinterpreted the Constitution, and even then is exposed to the chance of forming an absolute government, which sooner or later is likely to fall into the hands it is struggling to escape. The market has proved itself the supreme engine of innovation, production, and distribution. But its method, as it careens ahead, heedless of little beyond profits, is what Schumpeter called creative destruction. In its economic theory, capitalism employs the model of equilibrium. In practice, its very nature drives it forever toward disequilibrium. The unfettered market conservatives worship systematically undermines the values conservatives hold dear. Stability, morality, family, community, work, discipline, d- d- delay gratification. The glitter of the marketplace, the greed, the short-termism, the exploitation of prurient appetites, the anything-goes psychology, the ease of fraud, the devil-take-the-hindmost ethos, all are at war with professed conservative ideals. Even premier capitalists are appalled by what runaway capitalism has wrought. If understanding capitalism can be measured by success in making money out of it, no one understands contemporary capitalism better than the financier and philanthropist George Soros. Although I have made a fortune in the financial markets, Soros writes, I now fear that the untrammeled intensification of laissez-faire capitalism and the spread of market values into all areas of life is endangering our open and democratic society. The uninhibited pursuit of self-interest, Soros continues, produces intolerable inequities and instability. Market fundamentalism is the great enemy, as I it, of democratic capitalism. It remains a question of power. The unconstrained market is not a check on, but a stimulus to the domination of business. Jackson, TR, Wilson, FDR, were everlastingly right in affirming democracy's need for countervailing power against the power of domination of America by business. The need is as urgent today as it has been in the national past, for the untrammeled market is not likely to solve the problems that currently assail us. The market will not by itself improve our schools, or protect our environment, or rebuild our infrastructure, or civilize our cities, or provide all, of us, all our citizens with medical care, or, or protect consumers and investors from business deception and fraud, like firestone tires, or reduce disparities in wealth and opportunity. The very nature of such problems calls for affirmative government in the progressive spirit, As a hero of my youth, Orestes A. Bronson once said, the men of wealth, the businessmen, manufacturers and merchants, bankers and brokers, are the men who exert the worst influence on government in every country. They act on the beautiful maxim, let the government take care of the rich, and the rich will take care of the poor. Instead of the far safer maxim, let government take care of the weak, the strong can take care of themselves. The work of the progressives is not yet finished the great strength of democracy is its capacity for self-correction and as Tocqueville said in Democracy in America governments must apply themselves to restore to men that love of the future with which religion and the state of society no longer inspire them thank you
1: in a book that was very much concerned with the legacy of progressivism. Richard Hofstadter in Age of Reform found more discontinuity between the progressive era and the early 20th century and the New Deal of the 1930s. Our first commentator, Alan Brinkley, has devoted much of his career to studying New Deal uh, when what was called progressivism early in the century was called liberalism. Uh, I might say that uh, uh, Alan does have a connection with, uh, with Princeton University. This morning you heard from John Mern about all the panelists who had connections with Yale. Uh, Alan uh, graduated from Princeton, class of 1971. Uh, so he will be our first commentator on the legacy of progressivism.
3: Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Like everyone else, I'm pleased to have been invited to uh, participate in this conference. I want to thank Sean and everyone else associated with it. Uh, And it's a pleasure, as always, to be back at Princeton, uh, to be in a room where I once sat as a student, uh, like John Cooper, listening not to Eric Goldman, uh, in fact, but to a figure who in 1969 was a much more famous figure at Princeton than Eric Goldman or almost anyone else, and who I suspect is now completely forgotten at Princeton, uh, Steve Kleinberg a sociologist and a very charismatic and brilliant teacher. Um, This is also a room in which I once taught, so it's a a very great pleasure to be here, even though the seats are just as hard as they were 30 years ago, despite the beautiful renovation of everything else. Um, The presence of President Clinton uh, here yesterday suggests that this conference is not just an exercise in the exploration of historical scholarship, but also an exercise in exploring the usability of the progressive past in our own time. And it's in that spirit uh, that I want to make my short remarks today, which will not be a direct response to the two papers we've just heard, papers, very interesting papers that are, of course, in in utter disagreement with one another, Uh, but a response more to the the conference as a whole and to the, the entirety of the conference so far. We've heard from a number of people uh, about their experiences uh, studying history in the 1960s and 1970s uh, and absorbing from those years a vision of progressivism very different from the vision we have largely heard today, a vision of progressivism as something disappointingly conservative, constricted, uh, even hostile to the democratic aspirations of many Americans uh, in those years. There are many reasons for this condescension and dismissal and even contempt for progressivism uh, in, in those years. One of them, as Dan Rogers pointed out earlier today, was impatience with its cautious and, as Dan said, namby-pamby uh, approach to economic issues. But I would suggest that an even larger reason uh, for the dim reputation of progressivism uh, 20, 30, or 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Uh, was the absence of an agenda on issues that became central to the liberal progressive worldview uh, in the 1960s. Racial justice, civil liberties, personal liberation. Not actually, I should say, the absence of an agenda, but in fact the presence of an agenda in much of progressivism that ran exactly counter to the agenda of the 1960s. Racial segregation the Jim Crow laws, uh, Wilson's resegregation of the federal government, nativism, uh, which led eventually to the immigration restriction laws of 1924 uh, with their invidious ethnic distinctions, Uh, moral regulation uh, of the private lives of citizens through prohibition, uh, through regulation of divorce and abortion, and many other uh, measures the suppression of civil liberties rather than their protection. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt's efforts to to uh, use the uh, law enforcement system to uh, quell the uh, activities of labor radicals. Woodrow Wilson's uh, support, or at least the, the, the uh, members of the administration of Woodrow, using World War I as a pretext for some of the most serious violations of civil liberties in American history. There are, of course, exceptions in the progressive era uh, to this uh, uh, racial and personal liberty. Uh, W.B. Du Bois, the NAACP, Jane Addams and the Settlement House movement, at least at their best, Uh, Margaret Sanger, Eugene V. Debs, uh, at least some parts of the women's suffrage movement. But these exceptions were no match, I think, in the end for the uh, drive to strengthen the boundaries around the white and mostly male nation uh, as progressives understood it and that they were principally concerned with reforming. In the era following World War II, the issues that progressives ignored or opposed became quickly part of the center, maybe the center, of the progressive liberal agenda. Racial justice, gender equity, personal liberation, personal freedom. And the great achievement of post-war liberalism uh, and its greatest claim, I believe, to moral authority uh, was this effort uh, to achieve a new kind of social justice for all peoples, to break down the boundaries around the conception of the nation and the conception of citizenship uh, that had so long limited uh, the the, the freedom and the uh, justice available to large groups of Americans. This is a project for which liberals paid a very high political cost, uh, but it is a project without which it seems to me liberalism would have no claim uh, to our attention uh, and our respect in the context of that struggle, of that post-war struggle, that very noble post-war struggle, progressivism seemed to many people to have no useful legacy. But to see progressivism simply in terms of what it did not do or what it did wrong is also to ignore what the progressive generation itself considered, many of them at least, of their own...
1: Dan Rogers this morning pointed out that uh, there were many different streams of progressivism uh, welling up from communities, from uh, previously unheard from groups. Our next speaker, Linda Gordon, has done more, I think, than anyone else, to broaden our understanding of some of these groups that were previously considered outside the mainstream of what we talked about as the Progressive Era or the progressive movement. Uh, The people who are concerned about the welfare of families and of children, uh, of women. Uh, So, our next commentator uh, who may address some of these issues is Linda Gordon.
4: Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here, a particular pleasure to. talk about progressivism in the uh, context of a talk by Professor Schlesinger, who uh, has not only written about it, but who did a very great deal personally to translate the progressive tradition into the contemporary liberal tradition. And I was also gratified uh, to hear Richard Epstein uh, acknowledge uh, that there really is no such thing as laissez-faire capitalism or free markets, that markets are always regulated Uh, The question is, by by what body they will be regulated and on whose behalf. Interestingly, it seemed to me that the two speakers here actually agreed on one premise, and that is that the hallmark of progressivism is a very strong and a very interventionist national government. Um, I think that's true, and I uh, tend to agree with everything that Professor Schlesinger said, but I actually want to suggest another common denominator. It's hard to find common denominators in progressivism because in the last 40 years, I think we've had a scholarship that has showed us how enormously uh, contradictory everything about it has been. Uh, Many people can here know those contradictions well. Let me just illustrate a few of them with a kind of shorthand. Um, Booker T. Washington, W.E.B. Du Bois, and Woodrow Wilson were all arch-progressives. Uh, although they had extremely conflicting views about the proper role for white people in our polity. Uh, so were uh, Wilson, who led us in a war, and Jane Adams, who was labeled a traitor and a Bolshevik for opposing that war, both progressives. And so, too, were uh, T.R., who we've heard a lot about, uh, and his opponents in the Anti-Imperialist League, all progressives. Uh, What I want to suggest is that the common denominator that can help us navigate these contradictions is a very strong political or, uh, I might argue, anti-political notion that government should rely on expertise and that the use of expertise can solve a lot of social and political problems. People like Carol Wright, W.E.B. Du Bois, Florence Kelly... Uh, influenced, as uh, Dan Rogers has shown us uh, so brilliantly by Europeans, in fact, not only influenced by them, but really part of an international movement uh, toward what Europeans call social democracy, uh, one of the contributions of these people was the development of the Modern Social Survey. What made them progressives was not simply that they were good scholars, which they were, but that the data they collected and presented should form, they believe, the basis of public policy. In fact, that expertise could resolve seemingly irresolvable political stalemates and that their responsibility extended not only to making recommendations, not only to writing legislation and even judicial decisions, but actually to agitating for these policies. The mark of their success can be seen in the way that congressional investigations and reports of congressional committees or special commissions have become a standard part of our political process. Many of the progressives supported moving large sectors of government outside the political arena entirely, Uh, for example, through hired town managers as opposed to elected mayors. Um, when, When we discussed this, However, many scholars frequently neglect to note that this use of expertise was not exclusively associated with big government. The private sector in that period of time was equally characterized by increasing reliance on authoritative expertise. Big corporations had their so-called sociology departments, foundations, sponsored social surveys. In in a a manner that they maintained was theoretically neutral in relation to the political struggles of the day. Corporations employed highly scientific efficiency experts to get workers to move faster. Advertising firms disempowered consumers by learning how to construct desires and even needs. And many of these people that I'm talking about in the private sector were also progressives. Yet, at the same time, the progressive movement was characterized by extremely high levels of grassroots activism, and what we might call, actually, amateurism, along with the professionalism. White women were among those the most skilled in manipulating extra-governmental power, no doubt because they were still disfranchised while nevertheless often people of significant privilege. Think of the way that settlement house leaders forced some city mayors to negotiate with them as if they were party machine leaders, the way that the U.S. Children's Bureau orchestrated a national network of volunteers to do some of the work that it could not do because its budget was so small. In fact, the progressive expert achievements rested on this grassroots activism, or, in some cases, at least the threat of grassroots activism. Yet the progressives were actually quite ambivalent about social movements, even some of the most left-wing of the progressives. They recognized their dependence, but were also uh, significantly nervous about these movements. On no question were the progressives as divided as they were in questions of democracy. Clearly, reliance on experts was a move away from democracy, removing issues from the reach of the electorate, TR called um, my former home, Wisconsin, the laboratory of democracy. But what was actually going on in Wisconsin? When La Follette became governor on an anti-corruption program, he used his patronage to supplement his legislative majority. He behaved like a traditional political boss in order to put through his reform program. That program was in some ways anti-corporate, but by no means simply democratic. He called on academic experts to draft legislation and staff commissions that regulated railroads, banking, trusts, foods, and drugs. When I was in high school in Portland, Oregon, studying civics, as we used to call it, My lessons included, very prominently, the initiative and the referendum, because Oregon was the first state to adopt these quintessentially progressive measures. And my lessons included the standard field trip to Bonneville Dam, where we saw the giant generators producing our cheap public electricity. And these things were represented to us in Oregon as the highest achievements of democracy. But, of course, you all know we've heard a great deal today about what we did not learn. We did not learn about the widespread adoption of voter registration and other methods aimed at disfranchisement of the urban poor, of African Americans, and, as I only discovered in the last few years, the disfranchisement of people of color throughout the Western states, a process yet to be documented by historians. Progressives were equally ambivalent, as Alan pointed out, about civil liberties. Many of them were downright censorious, eager to use the state to police morality, oblivious to how their standards of morality grew from their particular experiences inflected by their particular class, their particular gender position, their particular racial position. Um, A great deal of the increasing reliance on expertise was not so much anti-democratic in spirit as it was recognition that industrial and technological development left lay individuals defenseless without expert protection. How could the buyer know if the milk was adulterated when she was no longer in direct contact with the dairy farmer? Public health experts armed with germ theory realized that typhoid and diphtheria could not be confined to the slums. It took engineering expertise to make sure that those who worked in the new, taller buildings could be protected from fire and from structural collapse, or that those who walked the sidewalks outside could still see the sun. Um, Sometimes, in fact, this expertise was needed in order to compensate for lack of democracy. The miners I recently studied knew that the dust from the hard rock drilling was making them sick, But no one believed them until Alice Hamilton actually visited, went down in the mines, and provided an authoritative statement that led to the diagnosis of silicosis. The problem is that many progressives sought to develop and authorize expertise by delegitimating democratic decision-making. The progressive confidence in supposedly nonpartisan professionals was matched by a deep-seated distrust of the so-called uneducated, hard-drinking, allegedly easily corruptible immigrant, or black, or Mexican worker. The, The upshot of this is that progressivism was a perspective that cannot simply be categorized as progressive small p or conservative small c. Uh, As an exercise with students, I often provide a long list of a variety of specific progressive projects and ask the students to arrange these on a left-to-right continuum. You all know what many of these are. Just to uh, run down a brief part of that list, temperance, woman suffrage, muckraking, disfranchisement, initiative referendum and recall, public health reg- regulation, mother's pensions, workmen's compensation, segregation, civil service and the Hatch Act, immigration restriction, antitrust regulation, conservation, housing codes, prohibition, anti-corruption, the Mann Act. Progressivism is not going to provide a guide for us today. Uh, Our world is uh, less national and much more global even than 100 years ago. And uh, as Professor Schlesinger pointed out, even our capitalists are learning (coughs) that international regulatory rules and mechanisms may become a necessity. What what I find interesting to think about is the fact that in today's politics, uh, the progressive legacy, with a capital P anyway, seems to me obviously most closely approximated by Ralph Nader. Like the progressives, he calls for action against corruption, He damns the corporate powers that have appropriated much of the ability to make basic decisions about what kind of society and polity we should live in, a power theoretically invested in the electorate. Like the progressives, he is often moralistic and depends even more than Al Gore on math. Whether you call it fuzzy or precise depends on your uh, perspective. Like the progressives, Nader's campaign is significantly less forceful on issues of democracy and freedom, such as discrimination, welfare, the separation of church and state, public education. My point, simply, is that a contemporary small p progressivism has to hold onto a tension that I believe can never be resolved, uh, that the world needs government continually to rethink the market rules That are necessary in order to create a stable and reasonably just society. But the world also needs to be reminded that democracy, uh, however imperfect, is probably uh, the best that we can ever do, and never to fall into the uh, the assumption of the fallacy that expertise and education uh, can do better. Thanks.
1: In my own field, uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction, one of the most interesting uh, revisionist currents going on right now is uh, to revise in a much more favorable direction our understanding of the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant, uh, a war hero, the organizer of Union Victory. Our next speaker uh, did pretty much the same thing for General and then President Dwight Eisenhower nearly 20 years ago. And uh, I don't think that the grant revisionists necessarily have taken inspiration from Fred Greenstein, but they're doing some of the same things. I should mention, uh, in addition to the information about uh, Professor Greenstein in the, uh, in the um, program that you have here, he is uh, currently the director of the John Foster Dulles Program for the Study of Leadership in International Affairs here at Princeton University.
5: I'm not sure I really want to be anointed by someone who was once said to be part of a declension and went from dull duller to dullest. Um, uh, That's I think of as a very peripheral aspect of my curriculum uh, vita, and something related to um, service I did for the Woodrow Wilson School to raise uh, uh, funds at the Centennial of Dulles, But I would be happy to be mentioned, so I'll do it myself for a more recent book in which Eisenhower is put in context with 11 other presidents. Uh, one called "The Presidential Difference" from FDR to uh, um, uh, to Clinton, but having done that self-advertisement, I'll try to go closer to what might be the purpose of being here. And and I don't quite know why I'm here, because uh, uh, looking at disciplinary compartments and going down the program, I find uh, uh, 17 uh, historians who are either speakers or other people who speak, panelists and moderators. One law professor who seems to be uh, at least a quasi historian, judging from the depth of his historic uh, erudition, uh, whatever the the direction he places on his interpretations, uh, and a political scientist who uh, does, in fact, spend time in archives and reads memoirs and interviews, people, but all beginning in March 1933 with no, no professional expertise about the period, which I take it might be bracketed by the capital P, Progressive Period, which could begin, say, with the enactment of the Hepburn Act, at least at the national level. at The state level, obviously, going back closer to the turn of the century, particularly in, in, in La Follette's Wisconsin and in other uh, states, and then perhaps brackets at the other end after this uh, 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 1916 uh, legislative push on the part of, of, of Wilson. Well. Uh, I did something very different by way of preparation from what everyone else seems to have done, but maybe it's denominationally uh, appropriate. It's not. I'm not saying that progressivism is a good thing or a loathsome, loans, a loathsome thing. I, I thought that what I would do, given my lack of expertise and my political science impulses, was just to ask. Uh, when and how and under what circumstances and in what periods in American political life are there bursts of, of policy making and of policy accrual which in the small p sense of the word could be treated as, as progressive. And, and actually my influence is uh, Arthur Schlesinger who was uh, in um, a book in which he uh, uh, has some not totally kind things to say about my Eisenhower revisionism, but as a a marvelous piece that echoes his father's classic discussion of cycles in American politics. Uh, I'm also looking perhaps not strictly at cycles, but at periods of time. And it seems to me as important as the Jacksonian period is if you think about cumulative effects on the statute book, the Constitution in the way of amendments, and perhaps public policy via uh, executive orders as an added thing, Um, one looks first at a period before this, and this is the Civil War and Reconstruction period where, where there's a lot of activity and such things as the Homestead Act, the blizzard of Civil Rights Act and reconstructive reconstruction uh, legislations, the Emancipation Proclamation, Land Grant College Act, and the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. This, I think, um, you know, lays down part of the Coral reef of positive government that is a part of our heritage. Some of this, of course, doesn't endure as as, the, as, re, as reaction sets in and, and so on. Uh, then, just to skip over this period for the moment, uh, obviously the next one is, is is the New Deal period, and there it seems as if the critical time, uh, obviously the dramatic hundred days, but the first. Two Roosevelt Congresses for the first term, and then it's commonly suggested that after the, uh, the, the complexities of the court packing or uh, attempt to, to, uh, to get statutory action against the Supreme Court, which was blocking New Deal. Policies that then things wind down, but in fact, up till the, ni- the 1938 uh, midterm election, with the uh, uh, with the strong um, Republican surge, there continues to be substantial legislative activity. So again, the sort of alluvial spray uh, that are added to the statute books are just you know just extraordinary, and, and without even. You know, even thinking of enumerating them, the obvious things are the many, um, are the, the many alphabetic uh, entities: TVA, SEC, F, uh, FDIC, FHA, Social Security, the uh, National Labor Relations Act, um, the um, uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, which does occur after the uh, 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 after the 36th election. Um, what? Is striking, one thing that's striking about all of this period of activity is that some of it goes on, some striking things go on, such as the Norris LaGuardia Act and uh, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation and so on while Herbert Hoover is in the White House. And not necessarily because these were primarily Hoover, Hoover initiatives, but what, but what this suggests is that we we're looking at a period of time or an ethos or a, or a Spirit of the times, and that is, of course, quite consistent with the with the with the Schlesinger and Schlesinger uh, dicta on on the periodic periodic nature of um, of reform, and by reform I think we mean expansion in the reach of the government and the use of the government to engage in leveling of some kind or another, economic, social, uh, or political. Then relative period of quiescence, although you know, one could easily underestimate the kinds of changes that go on. you know, uh, 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 even let's say in in, uh, in the eisenhower years or in the early kennedy years when when kennedy comes in and unexpectedly has a more strongly conservative congress than the one that had been reelected that had come in in 19, uh, uh, in 1958 but obviously the next big push is associated with uh, with the great society but it isn't even dependent on the landslide election of of 64 the dramatic civil rights act of of uh, uh, of, of 1964 is done without the anointment of, um, uh, of, um, the, of, of the anti-Goldwater uh, Johnson. Landslide and uh, the war on poverty comes in at, th- at that point. But, but then there is the first session of Congress following Johnson's re-election with these extraordinary further breakthroughs. The, the, the Voting Rights Act, which I do believe has really transformed American politics even more dramatically than the previous year's uh, enactment. Uh, the uh, I mean just really broke the South apart in terms of a, of a segregationist white um, uh, monopoly uh, on power. A very skilled and gifted maneuver on the part of Johnson that broke through the impasse against uh, federal aid to pre-collegiate uh, education by 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 a. Act of political ledger domain, which consisted of, of awarding subsidies to children rather than, uh, rather than schools, and therefore made aid to parochial schools acceptable by a fiction and a, and a guise. And then, of course, uh, Medicare, But and then it's commonly suggested that, of course, as Vietnam heats up after 65 when Johnson skillfully and, and per blindly uh, uh, gets us into that open-ended war without any, any uh, serious discussion or debate or any serious estimate of where it would come to and what it would add up to the. it's commonly suggested not much happens but um, in fact social programs continue to emerge throughout, the, throughout Johnson's elected uh, term and by one uh, calculation there are 77 social programs that accumulate in the statute book some of these giant ones like Medicare and aid to primary and secondary education but many many others then Harking back to the the observation that, in fact, the earlier New Deal accumulation um, is partly an accumulation uh, that preceded Roosevelt coming in, things like Norris LaGuardia that occurred when when Hoover was in office, uh, the same kind of tabulation shows 44 Uh, more social programs during the six years of the Nixon presidency and the uh, 800 or so days of the Ford presidency. So it's in that period that we have the Clean Air uh, Act, um, uh, uh, the Endangered Species Act, uh, OSHA, uh, many, uh, many things. And then it seems to die out. And in fact, uh, the thrust in the in the Jimmy Carter period is toward deregulation, and then the president who said that um, the enemy is, is, is government and so on. Uh, the, uh, uh, now, back to the progressive period where I don't have a, you know, anything that I can really add. I could you know, run down the list of uh, uh, meat inspection Pure food and drug, uh, the Tillman Act, um, uh, banning corporate contributions to election campaigns, Underwood tariff, Clayton Antitrust—all these things, which seem to me to be closer to the true, to the tree level, than some of these uh, 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 obviously more um, uh, uh, abstract and ideologically uh, tinged issues that, that have been. Central concerns here again. What's striking? There have been one or two references to things happening during uh, the, uh, during uh, the Taft presidency, during this in-between period. Well, in fact, the Taft years do see the Children's Bureau, the Department of Labor, uh, the 16th Amendment uh, authorizing income tax, the uh, um, uh, the 17th Amendment, popular election of senators. So these are these do seem to be historical swatches that don't necessarily coincide with particular presidencies or even uh, or, uh, and, or, even the president's own preferences in many cases. And according, I don't know what your cycle, uh, when your cycle comes down next, and you've made it clear or hedged, as the case may be, that it's not a mechanistic cycle, but presumably not in the Gore-Bush first, first term. I think if you cut it off, it's every 30 years, isn't it? So you push it up to maybe 2,000.
2: 2,020.
5: 2020. Uh, okay, well, you're safe probably. Even I'm safe. I, was seven, I turned 70 this year. <laughs> um, the, it's, it's hard to see anything that would, at the moment at least, that's likely to be that big. On the other hand, there are these stalagmite. Accumulations. The first, the Bush presidency actually saw, I think, a major and uh, un, under-recognized civil rights uh, uh, enactment in the form of the Americans with Disability Act. That really is having ripples of all sorts and continues to in American society. There, sleeper effects in 19, going back to '64, the uh, the. Women's rights provisions of the Civil Rights Act of 64 were put in by the segregationists as a killer amendment in the hope that it would, uh, uh, would, would, would break labor out of that coalition, but they have come to have, have consequences. So uh, uh, I'm lacking a crystal ball, but, uh, but uh, uh, maybe someone else here that has one. I'll subside.
1: Mm. Uh, the, the, the credentials of our of our last uh, commentator as both a Washington insider and an independent thinker are clear from the biography in the program uh, there's one thing that's not there though that I discovered over the, uh, the break uh, this afternoon uh, that Michael Lind has one thing in common with Theodore Roosevelt uh, he owns a ranch in the west uh, Michael Lind is our final commentator, and after that, we will open the floor to questions up until 6 o'clock. So, Michael.
6: Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Since it's fallen to me to be the last commentator today, I think uh, we ought to pause to pay tribute to a truly outsized uh, Promethean figure with a bold vision of the future and a great impact on his times, to whom all of us here in this room owe a great deal. I refer, of course, to Sean Wilentz, the organizer of this conference. And I'm also very grateful to uh, Richard Epstein and uh, Arthur Schlesinger for uh, providing us with very clear and succinct and, I think, uh, non-debatable definitions of, respectively, classical liberalism and what I will uh, refer to as uh, progressive liberalism, uh, classical liberalism being the uh, traditional agenda of a more limited government and progressive liberalism uh, having a somewhat more expansive view for the state in areas of regulation and also the redistribution of income without, however, uh, abandoning the classical liberal belief in private property rights and individual civil rights. And I think since it's uh, 2000 and we're discussing the progressive tradition back to 1900, we can take a sort of uh, stratospheric view of the landscape. And I would venture to say that in the 20th century, in the liberal democracies, not on a worldwide scale, because there were great struggles with various forms of of tyranny, but within the liberal democracies, I think there were three great debates, uh, or there were three opposing schools of thought about how to organize a liberal democratic society with a modern Uh, advanced urban industrial economy. One of those schools uh, was classical liberalism, and it has uh, defenders today. Another school is progressive liberalism, uh, which takes a more expansive view of the state. A third school, which was profoundly important, not so much in the United States as in Europe and other parts of the world, was democratic socialism uh, or social democracy. I prefer to uh, call it democratic socialism for reasons which will become apparent. And this is a different tradition from Marxism-Leninism, but it ultimately comes out of Marxism. It's the more democratic, more liberal version of Marxism. Uh, I think it's clear from the perspective of 2000 that the classical liberal school, although it can be defended uh, uh, and has quite eloquent and articulate spokesmen, was politically defeated in the industrial democracies by the middle of the 20th century. This was a real battle in terms of first principles in the first uh, few decades, perhaps in the first half century of the 20th century. By the 1940s, 1950s, the 1960s, the battle was largely over. Every major industrial democracy in Western Europe, in uh, North America, and in East Asia had adopted one or another form of what I'm calling progressive liberalism. And, And by progressive liberalism, I mean something that's expansive enough in the purely economic sphere to uh, include uh, Christian social democracy in Europe, uh, the Japanese uh, version of the welfare state, and so on, uh, what some people call welfare capitalism or reform liberalism. That is, every major industrial democracy had some sort of state-subsidized or uh, tax-incentivized form of uh, social insurance, of Social Security, of public pensions, Uh, uh, public health care or tax-encouraged corporate-provided health care. The whole package that we think of today as entitlements, uh, which was central to the progressive liberal tradition in economics, was in place in various forms uh, more or less adequately Uh, Most liberals in the United States would think less less adequately in in the United States than elsewhere. But this existed. This was common to all of the advanced industrial democracies. Uh, So classical liberalism, to the extent that it had tried to prevent the formation of social insurance and of of highly centralized uh, government regulatory bureaucracies, Failed. It failed politically. I don't think it was discredited intellectually necessarily, but it was politically defeated. Uh, And and so we can move on to what I think was the next great struggle between progressive liberals and a much more powerful force that was opposed to them, Uh, again, more in other countries than in the United States. And that was democratic socialism, which was always very weak in the United States, partly because it was opposed so vehemently and correctly, I think, by the progressive liberals. You know, there's a tendency to use this term progressive to mean two things, Uh, to mean uh, welfare capitalists in the tradition of the early 20th century progressives and the New Deal liberals, and and, uh, what I would argue both modern national parties. Uh, There's another very ambiguous use of the word to mean left or radical left. Well, there's a big difference between uh, Eugene Debs and Woodrow Wilson, Uh, between uh, Earl Browder the uh, chairman of the Communist Party USA and uh, Franklin Roosevelt and if we limit it only to the democratic socialists we can be uh, upset that they were persecuted as they often were not only by conservatives but by progressives and liberals but I think those of us who consider ourselves in the progressive liberal economic tradition uh, should thank God that they were defeated thank God Eugene Debs was defeated that we didn't have socialism in the United States even democratic socialism thank God that Norman Thomas failed Uh, uh, They were very well-meaning individuals, and many of the individual reforms in civil rights, in women's rights, uh, and things like that made a great deal of sense, even some of the social insurance. Uh, Their basic idea of how to organize a large-scale industrial economy was based on a fantasy, uh, which would have wrecked the economy of the United States, leading to some kind of probably very nasty reaction. Uh, We can say the same thing about socialism in Europe and East Asia. Democratic socialism now, not Marxism, Leninism. I'm talking about the ordinary democratic kind. There, the death of the uh, democratic socialist tradition was largely self-inflicted and very lingering. That is, beginning with uh, Bernstein and Kautsky in the early 20th century, and by degrees at different rates in different European and uh, East Asian countries, Uh, The more intelligent uh, democratic socialists distanced themselves from this idea of nationalizing the economy and abolishing private property to the point that they became, by the end of the 20th century, largely indistinguishable from old-fashioned progressive liberals. Uh, which is one reason why uh, uh, this term progressive now refers both to people from the actual welfare capitalist tradition but also to the more thoughtful uh, members of of what ultimately is a tradition rooted in Marxism but which lost its connection to revolutionary socialism long ago and in practice is reconciled to having uh, a market economy with a certain amount of redistribution and uh, uh, social insurance. And in that connection, I should note, that the Swedish model was a progressive liberal model by this definition. It wasn't a, a socialist model. Uh, Sweden never had large-scale nationalization of private property. Instead, it had a very flourishing economy, largely based on exports, and it used the proceeds from that to finance a very expensive uh, a welfare state and the welfare state is a, as opposed to the nationalization of property or a, a state control of the economy is the classic progressive liberal answer to the tension between social justice and economic dynamism which brings us to the present when in my view uh, there there is no longer a challenge a serious challenge in politics not in the world of ideas but in politics to progressive liberalism broadly defined in a way that would incorporate modern European social democracy uh, in the North American versions. Uh, Richard Nixon said in the 1970s, we are all Keynesians now. Well, I think uh, someone like George W. Bush could say we are all progressive liberals now. Now, you won't hear this from the candidates. Every four years, the Republicans pretend that the Democrats are socialists. And every four years, the Democrats pretend that the Republicans want to restore the laissez-faire era of the 1900s and children will work in the sweatshops and, you know, the hours legislation will be destroyed and, and you know, environmental regulations will be repealed. Uh, But if you actually look at what they propose instead of what they say, it's clear that in the United States we now have two progressive liberal parties, both of which are committed in practice, whatever their rhetoric to the preservation of the uh, legacies of the progressive era and of the New Deal. And I should add, of the Great Society, which, as we all too often forget, was largely a program of middle-class entitlements. You know, people, when they confuse the the Great Society with the War on Poverty, but the Great Society, the central program there was Medicare. Uh, So to to wrap up my uh, uh, brief talk so that we can uh, have a little time for questions, I would suggest that these old debates... In politics, again, not in the academy. One can have philosophical debates, you know, with all schools, but the, the old political debate of between the progressives and the classical liberals has been over for half a century, and I think that the debate over how to organize an advanced industrial society between the democratic socialists and the progressive liberals has been over uh, for a few decades, if, if not generations. In practice, there is no organized rival to this progressive liberal welfare capitalism. It comes in Margaret Thatcher Tory versions and Ronald Reagan conservative versions, but essentially that even the Ronald Reagan and the Margaret Thatcher version is different in kind, whatever their rhetoric, from actual real-life classical liberalism of the early 1900s type. In practice, every advanced industrial democracy today devotes between around 30 to 40 percent of its GDP to uh, government. Uh, up from, uh, I think in the United States, it's about 11 or 12 percent at all levels so in 1900, something like that. But this brings me to my final point. The assumption that we've heard for the past couple of days is that in 1900, the enemy was the market, and uh, we want to expand the state the expense of the market. Well, I think that was a good idea, frankly. I think in 1900 it was a good idea to expand the state and expand entitlements and things like that. People would disagree with me, but I, I think I would defend this. It made sense, I think. At least the costs were not unbearable to expand from 12% of GDP going to government transfer payments to 30%. But we're now in 2000. And just because Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson wanted to expand the state in 1900 does not mean that people in the tradition of Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson in the year 2000 want to expand the state again. You know, circumstances have changed. One of the reasons they've changed is they won. They won. The progressive liberals, the welfare capitalists, got most of what they wanted. And in doing so, according to the law of unintended consequences, which tends to govern human history, they created new problems to replace the problems that they were fighting. Uh, one of the panelists earlier said that the language of economic reform today is lost. I don't think that's the case at all. I think that there's an enorm- there's a new language of economic reform which is dominating politics in North America and Western Europe and East Asia. And the and language is how do we make these entitlements that we've inherited in our different welfare capitalist systems solvent and sustainable. This is the great issue that is agitating all of the advanced industrial democracies, mainly because of the aging of population, thanks to something that is an unambiguous good, which is uh, the prolongation of the human lifespan. But it, it is creating problems for these systems of social insurance which were created in the mid-20th century in quite different conditions. So I'll leave you with the thought that uh, today that it's sort of anachronistic to be railing against the corporations. You know, the real debate that's going on in in Europe uh, with uh, the third way movement in in Britain with uh, uh, the old wing of labor versus Tony Blair in the United States where you have a debate not only between uh, the Republicans and the Democrats but within the Democratic Party, between the new Democrats and presumably the old Democrats. The central issue is uh, how do we take this legacy of entitlements and social insurance Uh, which we want to preserve from the 20th century and rebuild it in a sustainable form for the long term given the demographic changes ahead. And I would just caution you against assuming that the only people who can be described as in the progressive liberal tradition today are those who simply want to add on new entitlements. Uh, That uh, Let's take the issue of prescription drugs. Uh, I think that one can be a perfectly good... Roosevelt, Kennedy, Johnson, Truman, liberal, and have misgivings about the idea of taking the most rapidly expanding part of the U.S. population, the elderly, uh, at a very time when we don't know how we're going to pay for their Medicare and their Social Security in 20 or 30 years, and creating a new, unlimited, open-ended entitlement. Uh, I'm not going to debate the issue. I just think that uh, whatever you think of the the goal of uh, providing health care for seniors, at this stage in our history, and this was not the case necessarily in the 1960s or the 1940s or the uh, 19-teens, we really have to think about the solvency of the inherited progressive liberal uh, systems. And on that thought, I'll leave you. Thank you.
1: We have a few, for, a few minutes for questions. I don't know if we have our microphone runners uh, here or not. Uh, if Yes, there they are. All right. So, uh, yes, the one over Oh, there's the other one over there. So if you have a question, raise your hand, and they there's your, that's a
7: good spot. Identify yourself, please. Phone, can you hear this? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, I'm Jim Livingston from Rutgers, um, and uh, I was astonished to hear the first two speakers uh, reproduce the idea that statism versus laissez-faire uh, that, that those were the alternatives in the progressive era and remain so authentic. calm down I'm, I'm not done um, but I was gratified to hear Michael Lind uh, put that to rest um, I, think that's, I think he's absolutely right can I, can I, um, can I reformulate the, the, the original version of what you were saying by saying the first three speakers could agree that when the anti-monopoly tradition expires that is the end of reform that's how I understand Alan Brinkley, to write, although today he was slightly more ambiguous. And can I also ask this question uh, in, the, in the spirit of uh, Professor uh, uh, Greenstein's remarks? If we, if we look beyond the pieces of legislation, politics narrowly conceived, and look at the progressive era and call it the period 1900 and 1930 and note that this is the moment at which I just made a list while I was sitting here listening to you, this is the moment of the invention of pragmatism, feminism, black nationalism, socialism, the new unionism, marginalist economics, modernism in aesthetics, naturalism in literature, and anti-colonial imperialism. If we look beyond politics narrowly construed, isn't there a legacy there? And I see culture in the in the yeah, in the poster. Sure. So.
1: I'm not sure uh, who wants to answer that question. Uh, I'll take a or shot. Questions. Go ahead. So.
7: Well,
0: I mean, uh, the first thing I, I say, I, you know, the question of monopoly versus anti-monopoly, which you sort of treat as something which we've solved, is in fact one of the major problems that we have to face today, and we're not doing a very good job in facing it. Um, for example, to take something like the school voucher versus the public school situation, that's a debate which I think even if you believe in public support, clearly is a debate between a monopoly union on the one hand and ordinary individuals on the other. And the ramifications of that debate, I think, will have enormous consequences for the operation of the system. And so it is, when you talk about health care, one of the real questions is, is there any way to make sure that the United States doesn't become a monopoly provider of health care services for other individuals? That's another kind of huge debate. I mean, I I think, in effect, what happens is the strong part of the laissez-faire tradition that is sometimes forgotten is that it was absolutely adamant against the creation of state monopolies and I think that's a part of that tradition which has survived and to that extent I think intellectually it's stronger than it's ever been before I mean intellectually not politically necessarily and I think what Michael Lind is it's nice to be sort of moderate on some sorts of questions and you know in politics everybody's a moderate but I think on the intellectual frontier that's not a theme that we want to forget. The misuse of antitrust law, the misuse of regulation and so forth is I think an issue on which there are enormous differences and and it will have very substantial effects on the overall economy. As to the rest of the cultural kinds of stuff, you know, lawyers tend to stay away from talking. And I will just follow Wittgenstein's advice. Whereof you not know not, thereof you must be silent.
1: I think Melinda has a question over here.
8: Shorty? Hmm. Yeah. Hi. My name is Melinda Lindquist, and I'm a history graduate student at Princeton. And my question kind of moves in a different direction. Um, from all of today's panels, I've come away with sort of two things that I'm going to be leaving this conference with. Um, one is that the Progressive Era was a very complicated period, filled with a diversity of actors, and it was a period of great change. The other is that our our opinions of the Progressive Era seem to be heavily informed by contemporary political situations. Um, so with those two things in mind, I'd like to ask the panelists, and also any of the panelists from the earlier panelists, um, panels in terms of period in terms of periods of major reform or attempts to transform the United States during the long 20th century i wonder if any of you would comment on the allure of the progressive era versus for example the period of reconstruction so in a way i'm sort of asking the question of why the discussion um, and why our focus is on the progressive tradition and why we think we've chosen to focus on that today instead of maybe looking a little bit further back at Reconstruction, which for me is a period where we really did try to challenge something very essential in U.S. history which has to do with racism. And also, it was also a period when the former... um, discussant had said the former question, um, person that offered a question said that he thought of the progressive era as um you know this moment in terms of feminism this moment in terms of um black um rape um, in terms of like maybe nationalism and these things obviously existed before 1900 um the the suffrage movement before the Progressive Era was actually much more of an egalitarian-looking movement than it was during the Progressive Era. So if anyone would comment on that, I would appreciate that.
6: I think one reason why lots of politicians, I can't speak for academics, but why a lot of politicians are interested in the Progressive Era is that uh, in in a way that is unlike the New Deal era and the Civil Rights Era and the Reconstruction Era, it was a period when New technologies were putting strain on inherited ways of doing business and of living. Uh, What uh, historians call the second industrial revolution characterized by the internal combustion engine and widespread electrification and and, uh, technologies like this, flight, radio, cars. This was just really hitting at the time. And I think a lot of politicians, including uh, President Clinton, to judge from his remarks, see a parallel between the advent of the second industrial revolution in the 1900s and what some people call the third industrial revolution, the information age uh, today. I think that's the major reason why politicians at least find this an interesting topic.
1: I think we have time for one more question right over here, I believe.
5: Patrick.
9: <laughs> hello okay uh, i 'm Patrick Denine I teach in the Department of Politics uh, and I was I was a little bit surprised as well I guess by the dog that didn 't bite or bark Patrick, uh, louder at, at least from my reading or understanding of the Progressive Era is um, a self understanding of the era is informed as, at least as much if not more uh, by uh, definition of reforms in the political sphere. Uh, and I think Professor Gordon mentioned a number of those, uh, initiative and referendum, direct election of senators. Um, one that wasn't mentioned at all was the, uh, introduction of the political primary. I mean, a whole range of reforms, uh, which haven't, haven't been discussed as part of the progressive legacy, but it seems to me, um, following on Professor Gordon's own analysis, raised questions about ultimately whether uh, those can be deemed successes in a democratic sense, uh, taking Michael Lind's point, the law of unintended consequences and things like primaries, whether or not those have been successes. And it seems to me when you're talking about the legacy of the progressive area that it's worth as much re- reflecting on state economic relations, uh, reflecting on uh, democratic uh, concerns of democratic politics. Uh, and I was just I got surprised by that and was wondering whether anybody had any thoughts on that part of the legacy. Go ahead, Alan.
3: Well, I, I can't explain why no one addressed those issues, which are indeed central to uh, the politics of the Progressive Era, this sort of widespread assault on the political parties through various political reforms that characterize so much of both the state and local reform efforts of the late 19th and early 20th century and eventually also national reforms. Uh, I I do think, though, that in assessing the results of of those reforms, uh, it's hard to know uh, what to say about them. I mean, in in some ways, one might say they succeeded all too well. Uh, in the sense that, you know, the primary system has certainly triumphed over all the other uh, methods of choosing candidates. Uh, in states where there are uh, initiative and initiatives and referenda, most notably California, uh, they've become a very central part of, of the politics of those states, and many people believe a very destructive part. And if you see these reforms in the context of what I described and what many others would describe as a widespread assault on the parties, then clearly, you know, that war has been won. Uh, The parties outside of Congress are essentially dead. Um, Whether... All those things together have created a political system that we now admire and consider more democratic and just is, is obviously a a much more difficult question to answer. And I think most people would say the answer is no. And perhaps that's why in looking for progressive legacies that are, that are sort of retrievable and usable in our own time, that's one that, that falls, has fallen a little further down the list than it might once have seemed. No, it wasn't, but, but it, it was an implication, I think, of the way this conference is organized.
1: Well, uh, I hope you will join me in extending our thanks to all of our panelists. Uh, and um, for the whole conference, I think, the panelists who are still sitting in the audience have been very stimulating. I uh, wish we had more time. That's always the case uh, at one of these conferences. There are lots of loose ends, lots of questions that deserve further discussion but I, for one, have been enlightened, and I've enjoyed this day. Let me, uh, let me uh, call on Sean Wilentz, uh, who will officially close
10: the conference. I will officially close the conference. I want to thank everybody once again for, uh, for coming, the, the panelists who are superb. This really is one of those conferences where I wish we could begin right now. Um, and really get going, I do have to make one set of remarks for the camera because this, and this is not quite so happy, but I, I have to uh, say something. Um, you read the Wall Street Journal today. there was a, a, an unfortunate report. Um, a colleague of mine in this university who was invited to this conference, um, but who chose not to come to the conference for whatever reasons um, sent a, uh, well, I was asked to write a piece for the, for the Princetonian about the conference, its academic setting. This colleague, who decided not to come to the conference, decided to write a letter or a column to go with mine on the premise that this was some sort of debate, political debate. Upon hearing that, I asked that that not be the case, and that I would, I would withdraw my column, my piece. That piece has now been published in The Wall Street Journal Uh, With the accusation that I have somehow, the organizers of this conference have somehow tried to suppress free speech. (laughs) It's also appeared on the Fox News channel. (laughs) This is, uh, all I can say is that uh, uh, they are unanimous in their their contempt of us, and I am very proud (laughs) of their (laughs) hatred.
5: I didn't expect